Hello and welcome to Longevity Now, the place for all your news and views about life extension from around the world. I hope everything has been going well with you, the audience, over the last couple of months. At Longevity, the quest for unlimited lifespans continues. In the past year, as you know, we have supported two small research projects and a third is just getting underway. The first one was sadly not completed and I will take a lot of the blame for not better evaluating the research setup and personnel. The other one was a success as you will hear in the following interview. The successful research was an investigation into mitochondrial uncoupling. Dr. Jan Gruber and graduate student Feng Sheng at the University of Singapore conducted a series of experiments to test whether the lifespan of C. elegans worms could be extended by modulating the mitochondrial uncoupling process. Here now is Dr. Gruber recapping the results. Once again, here we are with Dr. Jan Gruber who conducted the research at the University of Singapore or oversaw the research of mitochondrial uncoupling. Welcome to the program, Jan. Hey. And I'm going to put you on the spot right away. If you could describe the results of the mitochondrial uncoupling research in just one word, what would it be? Complicated. Complicated, okay. Which is a safe answer for almost any research, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) It was complicated. Okay, well, that's a good answer. How about we get into some of the details? We were hoping to see some lifespan extension in C. elegans with the use of DNP uh, to modify the mitochondrial uncoupling process. Did we get some lifespan extension? Well, we got some in the initial screening. But it didn't happen in the big experiment, which is the disappointing part. So um, as you probably remember um, from the proposal, we said we would try to get an ideal dose by titrating um, against either membrane potential or ROS production. Um, but then after, after trying some of the preliminary experiments, we basically decided that uh, because of a number of technical difficulties, it was actually easier to uh, screen against lifespan doing a quick uh, lifespan sort of screening experiment using a mutant strain. So basically the idea was to try a lot of different doses uh, and then do a very coarse determination of, of lifespan or survival um, at the different doses. Like, let me take a step back. One of the problems with uh, using chemical compounds that you don't know anything about in an organism is that you really have no idea where to start um, with your dose. So it could right. be uh, nanomolar, micromolar, it could be orders of magnitude, I mean, thousandfold difference could be the, the ideal dose could be anywhere. So you really don't know where to start. Um, and often research is done at just a few concentrations just because that's the only way to do it because you just can't do 20 or so different conditions. But we wanted to, to get, give ourselves the best chance. So we tried uh, 10 different conditions spanning a five-fold, five-thousand-fold uh, concentration range. So quite a lot of uh, uh, different conditions, and we used a mutant strain that doesn't lay eggs, so you don't have problems with offspring uh, in your in your lifespan experiment. So they're all sterile, um, and basically we looked at uh, survival only on two different days, so at day ten and day fourteen. And those days were chosen because the control worms at those days had, in our hands, fifty uh, percent and twenty five percent survival. So the idea was that you wait until your controls have half died. And then you look at all the different doses of, of uh, DMP that you, you're trying, 
uh, to figure out at which point you, you may get an interesting effect. So we thought that was quite clever because it was possible to do quite a large number of conditions that way. And we were very excited because we actually got, um, we put that in the, uh, the figure in the update, um, we got quite a, a significant difference in survival. So the controls on the day 10 had 50% and our best dose was 100 micromolar and we got almost 90% survival. So we thought, you know, we thought that was amazing because you got a very significant extension in that experiment. Right. Um, so, so then instead of doing the against the, the ROS levels or the, the, the memory potential, we actually determined our what we considered ideal dose in this screening experiment. So basically we went on with those uh, with 10 and 100 micromolars because they both ended up uh, working and we thought still giving us an order of magnitude of range would be a good idea. Um, and we tried that in a very extensive, multiple repeats, uh, fairly large experiments. There are pictures of this in the updates uh, with function with stacks of plates. So it was very busy with this. Uh, and we tried to reproduce this uh, 10 and 100 micromolar effect using wild-type worms under much more ideal conditions. So, you know, much, much better controlled blinded experiments um, using uh, um, very rigorously sterile conditions and so on and so forth. Yeah. And for some reason, under those conditions, we, got, uh, we didn't get those protective effects. That may be because we used this mutant strain for screening. Um, it may be because there was something suboptimal about those culture conditions for this uh, large first screening experiment. We don't know exactly why. Mm. But in the actual uh, large experiment, disappointingly, uh, the lower dose, the 10 micromolar, we basically got uh, a uh, I mean, zero effect. There was no difference. And the 100 micromolar was toxic. So, so, so the lifespan, lifespan reduction. That was, yeah, it was very yeah. disappointing, uh, especially after we were quite excited about the initial screening. Um, right. so, so, yeah. Yeah, you're thinking that the initial screening, it was something to do with the mutant strain or... Uh, but well, not- that's one explanation. The other explanation is that sometimes when you when you have... Uh, culture conditions that aren't ideal, uh, it's easy to make a difference to survival. And, uh, and doing these very large numbers of parallel conditions at a uh, high temperature, which is required for the, for the mutant strain uh, to be sterile, um, it could have been that there was something suboptimal about those conditions. And so we, we may have rescued something that we did wrong or rather that went wrong in those cultures. We don't know exactly. But then when you went to the large trial at the 10 and 100 micromole, uh, that that was when you had a, uh, the wild type. Yeah, we used and... wild type, and we did it under our standard conditions with low numbers on each plate and regular transfers. And sure. so it's much easier to keep it all sterile because you don't have these plates sitting there for a long time and high temperature, and so on and so forth. So those are the that's the better data. That's how we normally do it because right. we you know then you can only do one or two, maybe three or four if you really really have uh, a lot of time uh, conditions. And so, so we tried those two conditions. Um, Feng Shen would have liked to try more, but it's just literally impossible with those numbers to do more than one at a time, especially with because, just one, uh, one person uh, running the show, basically. Yeah, exactly. Oh. So basically a whole day job to, to count them and transfer them. And mm. if you want to get those N numbers and you want repeats and, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. So, so we could only do 10 and 100 under these ideal conditions, and then we basically got toxicity at the high dose and uh, essentially no effect at the low dose. Was, was that the most interesting thing that uh, you learned from uh, this research? Was that the toxicity uh, at that level? 
Um, no, no, I mean, we actually found quite, I think we found out quite a bit more because we actually then followed up on mechanism with this because we wanted to understand what was happening. But I mean, basically you asked about lifespan. So the, the punchline right. is that we weren't able to get a re- robust lifespan extension using DMP. Um, but basically what we did on top of lifespan is, I mean, one is the idea uh, is that uh, mild uncoupling should reduce ROS production. So we had a uh, a marker which which may or may not be uh, an indicator of global ROS production that we looked at. So we tried to determine how much RS, how much reactive oxygen species the worms actually produce. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of consistent uh, with what we saw with the lifespan, at the low dose, we got no difference. So the low dose, which has no lifespan difference, also has no difference in RS. Whereas the high dose, uh, for some reason, has three times the RS production in, in this assay. So in other words, they seem to be producing more and not less RS at those high doses of DMP, which may be a you know a toxicity effect, but it's certainly not consistent with what you would expect from from an uncoupler that you get at low dose no effect and at high dose an increase in ROS production, at least not trivially. So that's not so that is something that was unexpected from using DNP that the high uh, the high dose produced increased. Reaction, reactive oxygen species. Exactly, which were consistent with the reduction in lifespan. And, um, and then that, that hasn't get, been yeah. seen before. Has that been seen before with other uncouplers that have been yeah. used in other uh, type of lifespan experiments or uh, mitochondrial no. experiments? No, I mean, with other uncouplers, um, as far as I know, it's, it's not been seen. There was an interesting thing about, um, so jumping ahead, we took okay. that to the conference, you know, as a poster okay. uh, in, in, uh, in Brighton in the UK. And uh, and when we presented the poster, we had quite a lot of interest from from people in the field who looked at it, and and we discussed it with them. And one of the things we got more than once was that people said they had tried DNP in various settings before, and it had also either given them like noisy results or negative results or no results. So uh, quite a few people apparently have tried similar things, and this not in the literature because, well, because if stuff doesn't work, sometimes it doesn't end up uh, <laughs> right, right. going anywhere. Um, so, so um, that was interesting. So it seems to be something with DMP, which may be more complicated, um, especially in worms, possibly, than, than what you would naively expect. So other uncouplers, CCCP, have been shown to actually have some lifespan uh, extension, apparently, in worms. Of course, people have used DMP in other organisms. So uh, at least in worms, I would say there seems to be a problem with, with DMP. I, I don't think it uncouples. Um, Okay. Or at least, and just to finish that line of evidence up, we did look at ATP and oxygen consumption. So you'd expect oxygen consumption to be increased with mild right. uncoupling, possibly, and ATP to be decreased, also possibly. And we so we measured those of these things, looking for signature of uncoupling, and we did find no differences. So so in our hands, we were not able to show that under those two doses that we tried and that we did all these you know assays with. Uh, ATP was actually reduced and oxygen was up. So my conclusion is that under the condition that we tried, DMP probably did not uncouple the mitochondria, mild uncoupling, but probably did something else. Okay, so as far as the the, uh, research into uncoupling and uh, how it affects uh, lifespan, there is likely to be further research in the future that could uh, prove productive but just for C. elegans and DNP, it seems to be kind of a dead end. I mean, you know, other people are welcome to to try clever things, but what, for, 
I certainly think I will probably not uh, spend much more time on DNP. I will probably, I mean, I'm tempted to, to try some more of the uncoupling approach because I'm, you know, I'm disappointed with the fact that we couldn't show clear uncoupling because you, that was the hypothesis you wanted to test. So uh, if the original intervention doesn't do the thing you want to test, then you can't test it. I'm tempted to try maybe the CCCP or maybe some of the, uh, uh, Mike Murphy has some uh, targeted uncouplers. I don't know whether they've been tried in worms. Um, so there, there are other compounds that could be tried. Could be that we tried may in the worms. This. Yeah, okay. I, would, I would still tempted to to explore that. But I mean, of course, for now, uh, with function having finished, this may not be uh, rapidly progressing. No, yeah, that's uh, oh, that's understood. That's right. Yeah, time and money and uh, man man hours. <laughs> uh, exactly, that is always needed. That's right. Dr. Gruber, thank you very much for recapping. Uh, the mm-hmm. research there at the University of Singapore, and we wish you best of luck in the future as well. Hopefully, we'll be able to collaborate once again. Yeah, actually, can I say oh. something on that? Oh, please do. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, actually, I was um, the experience of uh, working on a project funded by this mechanism and through Eminence was actually really interesting because two of the things which really struck me was one is. Uh, it was really, really motivating to know that people have put up their personal money for this. So I think we did a lot more work per dollar than you would normally uh, okay. get out of a research grant because that also of that personal sort of obligation. Um, the other thing I think which is very interesting is uh, the expectation in return of feeding back on the progress on a regular basis was extremely hard for us. Uh, because as a as a scientist, one of the things that's the worst thing that you can do is say something that you then have to take back. Yes. Right. So classically, if you publish something and then find out that you made a mistake, it's it's about one of the biggest embarrassments that can happen to you scientifically. Um, and so the, the having to update work in progress in a, on a semi regular basis was actually psychologically uh, very unusual for us. So I actually found it very interesting to work in this way. But I do think it's it's a very interesting and and probably very productive way of doing things. So in the future, um, you would uh, you would uh, ha- be happy to see more grassroots uh, experimentation like this, grassroots support. Yeah, I think I think it was very. I mean, f- if you compare what we managed to do, we we will publish this. I think this probably will take a little bit more work eventually, but we we think we will write a paper that probably be published uh, based on this data. Um, if you look at what. Uh, large research grants normally uh, entail in terms of time and money. It takes a year or so just to write them and get them funded. Mm-hmm. Um, compared to what, what the result is, I think is it, it actually had, had a large uh, impact. Granted, maybe not the one we were hoping for in terms of showing that there was a, a, you know, an, an, a, an effect of DMP. We were hoping that it would be more interesting as a, as a compound. But as an experiment in, in funding science, I think it was very interesting and, and quite successful. And do you think other researchers would be able to deal with that um, constant uh, feedback as far as... Well, again, it's something you learn, right? Um, (laughs) I I think it's uh, if more of these grants were happening and people were more used to it, it may just become a a normal way of doing things. Um, I think at the moment the paradigm is you spend a year writing a grant, you spend three years doing it, you publish it, and basically once it's it's all bulletproof, then you really give talk to the public about it. Right. But if the public basically directly funds you to do something and then expects you to tell them what you're doing, it, it is a much more direct, uh, in, in a way, much more instant gratification because what you do today, you're basically going to get to talk to tomorrow and you may get feedback for it. 
Yeah, I, I, I think with our community in particular, I think with specific communities of people, grassroots organizations who are knowledgeable about the subject matter that they are exactly. funding, I think that it would go much better. And I think that uh, the, the collaboration, perhaps back and forth, could uh, advance research in the future. Yeah, that's something we, you mentioned last time, which we didn't actually get to do, was to actually tap into the, the potential of, you know, of the, the community. Yeah. You, yeah, exactly, of the community directly. So we haven't been able to, to find a way to, to spin out any right. of this because there wasn't much computer or, or analysis that doesn't require you know, touching test tubes. Sure. Uh, you know, you couldn't get the people to come in and count worms because that's just too far. Um, but I do think that is a, a something which to to have another opportunity to to think about something like this. Probably you write that into the proposal. You think of a way to actually leverage that the crowd directly, rather than you know just by by getting feedback on what you what you have done. Okay. Um, again, but that's a that's a learning experience to think about uh, think about ways to get the most out of that opportunity. Well, I, for one, was glad to put my money towards this research, even as we didn't get a lifespan extension or we didn't get the results that perhaps we had thought in the, in the beginning. Every uh, experiment is something uh, to learn from. So I'm very happy exactly. uh, uh, to uh, see the results from this research. And we will certainly acknowledge the eminence uh, as the funding body for, uh, of, oh, cool. of that publication. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Gruber. Well, even though the initial premise that lifespan might be extended using DMP proved to be a dead end, sort of, the scientist in me is very excited to hear that new ideas were generated from the results. During off-air conversation, Dr. Gruber mentioned that there were several curious things that popped up during the course of the research. Perhaps this will spur further research in new directions, not only in mitochondrial uncoupling, but other mitochondrial functions and cell signaling. I hope you also paid close attention to Dr. Gruber explaining how new and interesting it was to perform research funded by grassroots efforts. I think it goes to show that if Longevity hooks up with a researcher with integrity and passion, we will get good results. I want to close by thanking everyone that continues to support small-scale grassroots life extension research. I know it doesn't seem like that much, donating a few extra dollars to a research project which is sometimes conducted half a world away, but it is a crucial link in progress. The knowledge we gain about the mechanics of aging, whether it seems trivial or momentous right now, will no doubt pay big dividends in the future. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.